Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Face. Sue Grimmett is with me as we have travelled down to Byron Bay for the Byron Riders Festival, Sue. We are very grateful to be here in beautiful Byron for this beautiful festival. Beautiful Byron and a lot of interesting thinkers and writers. Yes, yeah, so stay tuned for a series of podcasts coming up from the Byron Riders Festival. Uh, today, joining us, we're very excited to have a columnist for The Guardian, author of a number of books as well, uh, most recently Trigger Warnings, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right, Jeff Sparrow joining the podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for making time. Thank you for the invitation. Um, now, as a way of, a, of, I guess, framing this conversation, we are in a very interesting political social time um, at the moment. As at time of recording, we're quite, still quite fresh from Boris Johnson becoming the yes. new Prime Minister in the UK. Um, obviously, we're a few years into Donald Trump now, and that's not becoming any less absurd to anyone. Um, maybe a little bit numbed, but not much else. And we're, we're told we're in the, the age of the culture wars, identity politics, trigger warnings, you know, the title of your book. Um, you know, you, I've been called a snowflake a number of times. Harden up, snowflake. <laughs> this is the, the context, this is the discourse that we've all had to come to know um, over the past few years. It does feel like it's come upon us quite rapidly. The change has happened quite suddenly and a lot of people are wondering, when did we enter this world? How did we enter this world? And, and maybe how do we get out of, of this world we've entered? So, Jeff, as, as a very broad question as a way of starting, I guess, this conversation, um, because I know this is where you spent a lot of your work, how did we get here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? Because I mean, it's, it's, it's very noteworthy, the disjunction between the kinds of topics and conversations that preoccupy the public sphere at the moment and the real problems that humanity faces. So as well as the various political developments that you touched on, of course, we're in the era of um, out-of-control environmental catastrophe that seems to be proceeding at a startling pace. And it really is striking how ill-equipped our political discourse leaves us for addressing these questions about you know, at, at, at the heart to do with our relationship with nature. And in some ways, as the world itself forces these very real and very material issues upon us, the discourse is preoccupied with fairly ephemeral cultural skirmishes. And so it's a very strange disjunction. I think it, it really does contribute to the sense of... Um, calamity and despair that so many people feel around the world. It's not simply that governments are making it clear they're not going to do anything to stop climate change. I mean, I was just reading in um, the Fairfax paper, or whatever Fairfax is called now, that um, the Labor Party MPs are rushing to join something called the Parliamentary Friends of Coal. So, you know, this is a, a pro-coal group which is being, you know, which is being inundated by Labor Party MPs and you know here is at a, at a moment where if we don't disinvest from fossil fuels as a matter of urgency we are seriously talking about making parts of the planet uninhabitable and yet the political class want to demonstrate their solidarity with coal because they see that there are votes in that inner culture war skirmish so it is quite extraordinary that's a very long-winded way of introducing <laughs> an answer to the question that you actually asked me but, I mean, the short way of responding to it is I think that we are seeing a playing out of discourses that really shaped politics from the late 60s onwards, that so much of what passes for um, left-wing thought now comes out of that era of the 60s and the early 70s and the new social movements that emerge there, and that dominates the thinking of the left, and in many ways the thinking of the right is shaped as a response to those currents that emerged. Now, so you came across uh, Trigger Warnings, the book by Jeff, and, and you've mentioned a number of times how helpful that book has been, I guess, for you in, in understanding the time we are in and the context we're in. Can you just talk a bit about, I guess, what, what the book helped you understand? I think what I found really helpful in your book, Jeff, is, is recognising the dangers of some of our um, rhetoric, that the binaries, that the assumptions that we have fallen into in, in the media assumptions that ordinary people you know the common sense approach the the ordinary people think in these ways you know that there's some sort of attack or um, that uh, the the intellectual elites are driving 
um, changes and driving uh, away, us away from traditional values. You know, that kind of language uh, really helped me make sense of the role in the church where you also hear the same things. And, you know, where I find that same mirroring of, um, of fear and anxiety um, and, and yet that seems to be making people in, uh, double down on their positions. And I think Jeff's book helped me to unpack some of the ways that we've actually been making, exacerbating the problem with, with the rhetoric and the language we use and, and how, do, how do we actually get out of our stuck binaries and find a more imaginative way forward. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, I think, I think what's frustrating or confusing a lot of people um, is suddenly how we are, and I guess social media has contributed to this, living in these, these silos, um, you know, of, of people who think our way. And the moment you encounter someone who doesn't, you, you sort of freak out a little bit or, or you scapegoat them immediately. Um, and then, you know, you, you tune into breakfast television and you see that they've got the person who's far from this camp and far from that camp just yell at each other for a bit. And it, it's a very disheartening time to, to be seemingly to be political, to be social, to care about the planet, to care about people who are suffering. What keeps you, I guess, sane in, in that context, Jeff? Well, that's presuming that I am sane. But <laughs> I mean, I, look, I, I think the, the point that you make is a good one, but it's also one that we need to be um, a little bit careful about. I mean, I am for social conflict. I think that society is divided in various ways and these divisions are real and need to be fought out. I think the problem at the moment, um, in a funny kind of way, the fights are so vicious because the stakes are so small, if you know what I mean, that the, the really kind of um, vicious uh, sort of rhetoric in Parliament, for instance, is taking place between um, politicians who agree on almost everything. Like yes, the gulf yes. between the major par parties now is so much smaller than ever. I was just for something else. I was just doing some research about the 1950s, and you, you know, these descriptions of what parliamentary politics entailed in the early 50s. You know, so the um, you know the early phases of the the Cold War. Menzies is trying to outlaw the Communist Party. You know, these descriptions of Menzies speaking at town hall meetings and people throwing things at him and, you know, Menzies saying to various people in the Labor Party that when the Communist Party is banned, you'll be interred in a Labor camp. You know, it's just extraordinary. And, and, of course, what this was manifesting was real real struggles that were taking place in, in, in society. There was a real issue at stake here that people were fighting through. And so naturally that will manifest itself in this kind of, um, uh, of rhetoric. So in some ways I think that, um, well, okay, there, I was talking about climate change before. I think people should be angry about what is happening to the planet. The planet is not dying. The planet is being murdered and the people who are murdering it have names. It's a very small number of companies that are responsible for the vast majority of the um, the carbon pollution in the atmosphere. The vast majority of the um, the vast majority of the pollution has been released since the signing of the Kyoto Agreement. Mm -hmm. So all of this time that politicians have been telling us that they've been doing something about the problem, actually, it has just got worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And worse, and people people need to be angry and loud and strident about that. I guess it's, it, but it's partly a question of like <sighs> fighting for things that matter yeah. in a way that achieves something. Mm. If you see what I mean, and, right? And I guess too, you're talking about the the lockstep that the two major parties are walking in on so many issues, including, I mean, th there's been, you know, not enough to differentiate, you would say, in climate issues and also not enough in things like refugees, refugees. you know, mm. uh, that we find that same rhetoric um, and, you know, the, the in, in trying to work out how we respond in a humane way and how do you actually uh, engage politically when, when the major parties are saying the same essential thing um, and the fear about about safe borders and, um, and a blind eye to to the persecution of some of the world's most helpless people on Madison Nauru seems to be something that they that everyone kind of just accepts and agrees on politically and so where do you go how do we as a society and when when we seem to be being distracted by issues um, by minor issues when when the big stuff seems to be mm. sitting all in a conglomerated mass and ignored well refugees is, is and refugees and asylum seekers is a good example of the point that you're making early about earlier about the division between you know ordinary Australians and the political class because 
when you have discussions around refugees, you know, at festivals like this one or other one, amongst the sort of, you know, intelligentsia or the political class or whatever, it's taken for granted that the refugee debate is being driven by the hatred of ordinary Australians for refugees and, in fact, that it's politicians who are trying to sort of hold back this sort of tide of xenophobia or, or whatever. Actually, that's not the case at all. When you look at the studies that have been done about it, it's actually much more complicated than that. It's certainly true that there's a number of studies that show that Australians are prepared to tolerate extreme cruelty to, to, to refugees. And there are some people who think that the, the, the detention centres aren't cruel enough. If you poll people, though, about the issues that matter to them, um, border security consistently and has done so for years comes down very very low much much lower than things like housing much much lower things like schools health and of course as soon as you think about it it makes perfect sense that most Australians want their kids to go to a good school they want to have you know good hospitals um, they don't want their their roads to be overcrowded and I think what happens politically Governments can't deliver on those things or won't deliver on those things. They won't. It's much more difficult to build new hospitals or build new schools than it is to demonise refugees. And so there is a conscious effort to, by the political class, by politicians, to use the refugee issue as a way of demonstrating their control of the political situation. This is something we can do something about. We can't offer you hospitals, we can't offer you schools, we can ensure that these people are going to be put in camps and detained in camps forever. And so refugees are presented to people in the suburbs of Western Sydney as a proxy. Mm. So when they, they, they express their hatred of refugees, if you drill down, what very often they're saying is, I'm worried about overcrowding in my suburb. I'm worried about the fact that there are no hospitals and there are no schools. Now, obviously, the refugees aren't actually going to contribute to that overcrowding, but it's presented to them is, if you're concerned about these things, here is where you vent your, in your anger. Whereas if you actually ask them what they care about, it's not that at all. No, and and at this, the, I remember sitting down to dinner once, one of these dinners where you got just got placed next to someone, and uh, I was sitting and, and, and in the title of this conversation, it was when the cathedral where I was working had declared sanctuary and so this came up in conversation and I worked out that the person I was sitting with was very hostile to this position that the cathedral had taken, was very hostile to um, Christians being a part of this in any shape or form, um, felt that there was a very real threat you know, that uh, Australia needed to be protected. All this rhetoric was coming up over dinner and eventually, but when you actually sit and talk, what it came down to was the fact that he was worried about losing his job. And he was worried about how his office and that people were being made redundant. And he felt that it was particularly being that jobs are being located offshore in his industry that he was in and his chances of employment. And it came down to a very basic conversation about I'm really scared how I'm going to feed my family. Yes. I'm really scared about how we're going to function. And it was being then... So that whole conversation that we'd had at the start was really a smokescreen about sanctuary, was really a smokescreen for the fact that um, he, he was worried about employment, he was worried about basic needs, and he was trying to work out how the church could have been involved in this, with this fear that, that no one was hearing from him, and yet we all seemed to be concerned about these others that, that were being scapegoated in his mind as the, the ones see, taking that, jobs. That, that's a perfect example, isn't it? Because actually doing something about the loss of jobs offshore is very difficult and entails challenging some fundamentals about the economic system that no major political party is willing to do, it's much, much easier to say, well, you know, it's these refugees. Uh, the other thing about that is, you know, look, I'm not, and in this book and in general, I'm not trying to paint ordinary working class Australians as paragons or saints or say that they're not racist sometimes or they're not homophobic or whatever, because everyone knows, of course, there's racism and homophobia amongst ordinary people. Of course there is. But, um, you know, if you're talking about racism in Australia, if you want to find the most diverse um, suburbs, the suburbs where, you know, kids of different ethnicities and different um, religions play together, you go to the industrial suburbs, you go to the working class suburbs, and that's where you'll find Somali kids and Vietnamese kids and kids from all over the world. You go to, you know, like from Melbourne, you know, Turak or Brighton or the wealthy suburbs, and they are lily white. 
You know, so this idea yes. that, that it's, yeah. it's the intelligentsia who yeah. are very tolerant and very progressive, it's just bullshit. It's yeah. just not the it case is. at all. It is. And I mean, I think the marriage equality is one case in point too. And I think you made that point yes. in your book that, um, you know, we, we, we assume the ordinary people are conservative. They're actually not. Yeah. yeah. Well, marriage equality, I mean, we, you know, like I'm mean, sort of jumping ahead in the argument a bit, but marriage equality is a perfect example of this because it's not just that the political class lagged behind on that debate. It's not just that Parliament explicitly said, we can't resolve this, so we need to have a plebiscite so ordinary people can resolve it. It's not simply that. It's that the only reason there actually needed to be legislative change is because both political parties voted explicitly and consciously to make same-sex marriage illegal in 2009. Had that vote not happened, none of this campaign would have been necessary. They actively put a roadblock in the way and you know i mean the labor party needs to be indicted on that as well i mean penny wong voted for it you know all of these these supposedly sort of progressive figures thought that he would be um he was this was a wedge issue that the howard government was going to use against the left and they had to essentially uh kicked uh, queer people out of the way because they thought they would they would lose votes over it and yeah like ordinary people took to the streets in tremendous numbers and I think one of the really great things about that campaign was because it was an example of what I call direct politics in the book what it entailed was people had to talk to their neighbours they had to talk to their friends they had to have discussions in their workplaces they had to go on marches and all of that meant having conversations with people making arguments to people convincing people that you know families where there might be a homophobic uncle had to actually face up to this and say to, 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 to this person that like this is something that means a lot to me here is why it means to, this is why I want you to vote yes and I think as a result of um, that plebiscite it definitively established that a plurality of Australians were in favour of same-sex rights something that had never been tested previously I mean if you think before the plebiscite happened groups like the Australian Christian lobby were presenting themselves as if they represented the silent majority of Australians. And it's clear that they didn't. There were places in Tasmania where only two decades earlier had voted to keep homosexuality a criminal offence punishable by jail, voted overwhelmingly for equal marriage. This is like an astonishing transformation of public sentiment that happened remarkably quickly. That's fascinating, especially when you consider that the narrative that comes from the, the conservative... And when I say conservative, I'm, I don't want to, you know, play the, the wars of, you know, where the liberals, they the conservatives or whatever and, and paint them as evil, but that, that did come from the political side of this at least was that, as you said, and as it always is, that they were the common sense, they were the silent majority. I mean, that's certainly what, what people are saying has got Brexit over the line, got Donald Trump over the line that the silent majority won't be silenced any longer and are going to stand up. But but something you do touch on in the book, Jeff, which I think is such a, a key point and, and such a confusing point when you step back and look at it, is that it's the working class, this so-called silent majority of this working class, who want to overturn inequality, want to overturn, you know, the 1%, voted for Donald Trump, a man who, as you say in the book, go, lives in a, a building with a golden elevator. You know, he's almost the symbol of... of unneeded wealth unnecessary wealth and greed and 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 what the problems have been how did that happen <laughs> yeah i mean it, I, on, on face value it, it's an extraordinary outcome is here's this person whose whole public persona is based on conspicuous consumption yet he somehow presents himself as um an anti-elitist um when you step back from it though i don't think it's um really that much of a mystery so you have to i think the crucial aspect to it and the crucial aspect to understanding anything about politics today is recognizing the extraordinary levels of disaffection from the political class and the political system all across the world now this is not just a question of impressions there's you know a hard empirical data about the withdrawal of people from public life throughout all of the industrialised countries. So it manifests in things like declining rates of participation in elections, declining numbers of people joining political parties, the hollowing out of political parties so that most you know, social democratic parties can't maintain the branch structure that they used to be able to. Trade union density is declining, church attendance is declining. All of these sort of manifestations of social life are, um, are on the slide 
and instead of that we have this kind of generalised sullen hostility to um, the institutions of politics. And the United States particularly, that was exacerbated by the GFC. I don't don't know if either of you guys have been to America recently, but... um, the country just never has has not recovered from the GFC. Basically, America is falling apart. Like you travel through, you know, parts of that country, and there has been no infrastructure development since the you know the New Deal of the nineteen thirties thirties. So there are these towns that are just falling apart. These sort of rust belts kind of places. The GFC meant that large numbers of working class people lost their houses. Um, the jobs have never come back. So large swathes of America. Um, regard their politicians with absolute hatred and contempt in a country where voting is not compulsory. And I think what that meant was when you look at the two two candidates that were being presented in the 2016 election, all of the qualities that made Hillary Clinton seem such an appealing candidate to the political class in Australia were precisely the reasons why so many Americans didn't want to vote for her. Clinton was someone who had been in public life in America uh, for 30 years, very much associated with her um, her husband's um, administration. In that administration, she'd been one of the people who'd been um, pushing for a tough-on-crime approach that has led to extraordinary levels of African-American incarceration. She'd be one of the key architects of American neoliberalism. So in terms of you know job losses and the sort of stripping of the, of the Rust Belt, she's one of the people pushing for those kind of neoliberal policies. In terms of foreign affairs, you know, she was a loud voice in favour of the Iraq War. She was one of the architects of the um, the Libya intervention, which proved to be such a disaster. So if you were somebody living in one of these Rust Belt states and you have these two candidates, voting for Clinton seems like a vote for the status quo. It seems like a vote for all of the things that you hate that have happened to you over the last 20 or 30 years. Trump, on the other hand, okay... He is very much part of that political class. He and Clinton were actually quite close friends at one stage. You know, there's all these photos of them hanging out, um, um, hanging out together. But his persona in the election campaign was of the guy who overturns the table. He's this maverick who breaks all of the rules. And there, so if you actually break down the um, the vote, it wasn't that large numbers of working class people voted for Trump. Actually, Trump's vote was overwhelmingly wealthier people and older people. So it was a, it was a traditional Republican vote, the traditional constituency of the Republican Party. The big difference was Clinton wasn't able to get out the traditional Democrat voters. So African Americans were not keen on voting for some, a law and order candidate because there are more African American people now incarcerated than under slavery. You know, that um, if you, again, if you ever travel through the United States, it's very rare to meet an African-American family that doesn't have a family member who's in jail for extraordinary trivial offences. They're not going to vote for, um, for, for, for Clinton. Um, you know, most Americans think that the Iraq war was an absolute catastrophe. A lot of people know people who died in that war. A lot of people have a sense that trillions of dollars, literally trillions of dollars were wasted on this catastrophic war. Now... Trump didn't actually oppose the Iraq war, but he says that he did. <laughs> and in that sort of context, that was kind of enough. So enough. in that sense, I mean, I, I don't think it was so much that Trump won the election that um, Clinton lost it. I think for that reason that it's quite likely the Democrats are going to lose again. So oh, you think Trump will get re-elected? I mean, you know, like I, I don't know, you know, but um, I... I I think it's extraordinary that um, Trump is still in the position that he that he is. I mean, he's an extraordinary weak president. Um, he's managed to achieve almost nothing. So they're all you know all of these discussions about the Trump presidency representing this kind of um, you know sh- this sort of shift to American fascism, this authoritarian rule. I, I mean, uh, you know, Trump is a racist and he has authoritarian propensities, but actually. He's able to, been able to exert far less authority than most presidential um, figures have, just because he's incompetent. You know that all of the things he says he's going to do never happen. The wall doesn't get built. The, you know, the Muslim ban got overturned in in in, in court. You know, it's just mm. a whole series of rhetoric. In that context, it's extraordinary that um, the Democrats aren't, you know, polling 20, 30, 40 yes. percent ahead. And the reason that they're not is because. 
they just promise a return to the normality that Americans don't want. Americans are really clear, no matter their politics, that they have this really visceral sense that their system is broken, that you know everyone they know is working two or three jobs and barely struggling to, to make ends, ends meet. Mm. They don't want another Clinton. Mm. I, I actually wonder where you see the, the parallels in Australia then and, and where you see the, the brokenness um, in Australia now that that is that causes the deep pain and the, and the kind of reaction that we're mm. seeing i mean i don't think australia is as nearly as dysfunctional as the united states it's a very wealthy country and the standard of living is still you know relatively high nevertheless you can see the same phenomenon manifesting so we have this extraordinary parliamentary situation where very few prime ministers seem to last more than you know a year or so before they're toppled by their own party now what is the cause of this i mean you read most of the mainstream punditry and they just put it down to you know the failures of this particular individual that you know turnbull had these political problems or abbott had these political problems but this is not an explanation i mean because it just happens again and again and again i mean Unless you know, unless you conclude that our politicians are just you know the worst crop of politicians there ever has been, you, you've got to come up with some explanation of what has structurally changed in society that makes the the parliamentary system so unstable. And I think part of it is this hollowing out of political institutions that means that political parties don't represent a stable social layer in the way that they once did. So if you think of someone like um, Bob Hawke. One of the ways he was able to implement the prices in income accord and you know, and through that begin the process of introducing neoliberalism into Australia was at that time the Labor Party and the trade union movement were these mass institutions. Uh, I think, you know, more than half of us this could be wrong, but I think it was you know, I think the the figure of union density was something like close to fifty percent, certainly throughout the public sector anyway. Because of that, Labor had a cater of people who was making arguments throughout society as a whole, and that gave the, the political project a kind of stability that enabled, you know, 13 uninterrupted years of, of, of Labor in power, in, in power. There's nothing like that in either of the parties. Now, what does the Liberal Party represent? Nobody knows. You know, what is the platform that, that um, Morrison went to the election on? There's no platform. What does the Labor Party represent, you know? Um, and so that, that lack of stability means that they are so dependent on personal popularity and as soon as that personality popularity begins to dip that they're very susceptible to someone else saying, well, I'm more popular. That's a, a really good way of putting it and I know that, that you know, that's why we, we look around the world and we see other politicians we like or don't like and, and it sort of has become like the reality TV situation of voting them in or voting them out seems to be... Um, at least ha how people deal with this, because there isn't an engagement. I don't know if it is just this total distrust and disinterest in the political sphere, but there is a complete disengagement that has seemed to to occur. I mean, I, I know being on a university student in recent years, there isn't much of a, a university student engagement with these things anymore. And in fact, when you meet the, the members of uni uh, university political parties, there's just sort of an eye roll and a move on, like almost, mm. almost a disregard, like that sort of thing doesn't change anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. And and what, what's what's the point? It's it is almost this, this nihilism has just sort of crept in, um, or this alongside this individualism that I'm not going to engage beyond my own sphere. It, it, do you think that is is what's led to this sort of this this I don't know if it's this, this breakage down this sort of fissure? I, I think maybe it might be more accurate to describe it as, almost as a consequence. So this sense that. I, you know, like when I was a kid, you know, my, my, my parents would occasionally attend Labor Party branch meetings. This was just a normal thing that normal people did, you know. And you think about that now, the, the idea that just ordinary suburban people would regularly attend a political party and would think that voting on motions inside their local branch would have a difference in the world. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like a foreign country. Now, the causes of that go, I said before that... Um, one of the things that Hawke did was um, introduce the beginnings of neoliberalism into Australian um, political life. I mean, back then we called it economic rationalism, but it was the same notion that the market was the best and the only way that all social institutions should be organised. So, you know, the 
the various manifestations of it were things like the introduction of user pays principles, so the abolition of um, free tertiary education, um, the privatisation of previously public-owned institutions, deregulation, and so on and so forth. One of the things that does is it takes huge swathes of the economy and thus um, parts of society that affect people's lives directly out of any democratic control because all of these things are now being run by the market rather than being controlled, rather than being sensed that it was the responsibility of parliament to make decisions about publicly owned institutions or, you know, um, or um, the bank or, you know, publicly owned banks or whatever. All of that was taken away from public ownership and public control and privatised and marketized. And the more aspects of the economy and hence the more aspects of ordinary people's lives that are taken out of democratic control the less relevance political parties have you see what i mean like why if if both parties are committed to free market economics and a, a version of free market economics that says the role of a government is simply to let the market do its thing to tend to the market and let it do its thing rather than determine outcomes yourself what difference does it make who you vote for? Mm. Do you know what I mean? The, the yeah. two parties then compete simply on the question of who is a better economic manager. Yes, 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 better economic. And I do wonder. I'm, I'm very intrigued by the idea of you know civil society and, and what we do as uh, our, when we are faced with situations and confronted with issues like climate change. Then, and, and from a from a person of faith perspective, we say, well, this is something that is core business for us. This is something that is so important. We can't just sit around. How do we actually get engaged in this political process? Because, and for those who, who might listen and think, well, who are still teetering on having been brought up with faith as being a personal and private thing, but suddenly we're actually, when it comes to uh, welfare of those who are already so marginalised and underprivileged when it comes to whether that the underprivileged one be the planet or, or people who've been marginalised from the, from the get-go of life and the losers continue to lose, you know, this is core business. So how do we impact and actually engage in a society where the political leaders are just doing this kind of where it's become a personality game? How do we, how do we find ways to um, galvanise, I guess, our, our power as, as the people in a society to work for the common good? Okay, so that's a big question. This will probably be a long answer, even by the standard of these long, long rambling answers I've been giving you. But the first thing I would say to that is I think it's really important that people grasp that climate change will act as an amplifier of all the social inequities that already exist. So we were talking before about um, refugee policy. The predictions are for large numbers of climate refugees by the middle of this centuries and then you know the next 30 years or so um what will an influx of millions of people fleeing from countries that have become uninhabitable mean for australian politics i mean i think we can see or already well I, sh I should know that if um climate change refugees are not covered by the refugee convention so governments have no obligation to do anything for them we've seen how people who are covered by the Refugee Convention are treated, you know. So we are looking, I think, unless something changes radically, about a society that is based on huge um, walls and borders and prison camps and so on to keep out people, the, the unfortunates um, who are fleeing from the effects of climate change. I think that um, increasingly governments will um, move to a, a kind of policy of mitigation for the wealthy so that there will be areas where people can live a relatively decent sort of life where, you know, with air conditioning and, you know, good housing, whatever, and the vast majority of the population won't have those things. So I think climate change will be, you know, an amplifier of already existing inequalities. In terms of, like, how we motivate people about this, I think it's really important to see... Um, the strategies in the past have failed catastrophically. So on climate change, um, climate change is a really good example of 
the initial responses to climate change, I think, are a really good example of what in the book I call smug politics, a sense that this is something that needs to be taken care of by experts and that ordinary people need to be kept out of it as much as possible because they are a menace and a danger and it's up to us to do something about it. So if you think back to the early climate campaigns, it was all this stuff where celebrities would be on TV telling you to, you know, make sure you recycle your garbage and you turn your lights off and off and that's going to fix everything. And what the effect that that did was it helped foster cynicism and, um, in fact, outright denialism because people just realised, well, if what scientists are saying is true and the problem is as large as scientists say it is, this is not going to do anything. So why are these people telling us to do these things that palpably are not going to make any difference? In fact, you know, we we learn now that certainly in Melbourne, where I've been living until recently, you know, that um, all of the recycling that we did was all just bullshit. Like it was all just, you know, taken to China and burnt on plastic you know, so all this thing that everyone was told is you're responsible, you've got to do, and people assiduously did it for decades and decades. It was all a lie. So, th- so, so, so that that is the first thing, and and so then I would go back to, in the book I talk about the idea of direct politics, which is the idea that you know in the early phases of the social movements, um, activists had a very strong sense that the solution to political problems, particularly various kinds of oppression, was the mobilisation of ordinary people in their masses in order to change the structures of society. And I think climate change um, provides a really good example of the necessity of that. We now have a situation where both parties have made it more or less explicit that they're not going to do anything about climate change. You know, the the Liberal Party's clear, you know, they turn up in Parliament hugging lumps of coal. They're not going to do anything about climate change. But in the wake of the election, the lesson that Labor Party seems to have drawn is that we can't take policies on climate to the polls because we will lose. Therefore, we're not going to do anything. We're going to become friends of coal. You know, friends of coal. So if we want to do anything, it's got to come from the people themselves. We're already seeing movements like Extinction Rebellion all through... Um, Britain, we're seeing the high school students walk out. We're seeing a whole um, number of other actions around that world. And these are actions that are based on ordinary people organising in their schools or in their universities or in their workplaces. And it has all the advantages that we talked about in terms of the um, same-sex marriage plebiscite. It means that you have to become conversant with the arguments yourself. It's not just a question of voting for a politician. So you have to become aware about climate change. You have to make... You have to debate them with your friends. You have to convince your climate change neighbour, denying neighbour, to come along. And when you do come along to those protests, you get a sense of social power. You get a sense that you can actually change the world. You break down that sort of um, feeling of atomization and, you know, irrelevance that so often we have when we see an issue like this. So I, I, I think actually, I mean, I could be made to eat my words on this, but I think that we are looking now at over the next year that... Um, at a really serious movement emerging around climate change. We're already seeing that Extinction Rebellion stuff is growing by leaps and bounds. Um, And the young people who are getting involved in it are so angry. Mm. Well, and that's... It's funny when you think about how it might almost become in full circle from moving away from being politically engaged to a complacency, I suppose, or an individualistic retreating... And now the retreating hasn't worked for a long time and people are having to, in a sense, in a different way, in a new way, become politically engaged again. Is that what you're seeing? Oh, no, totally. I mean, I, I think the political engage, disengagement that you're talking about was always accompanied by a level of kind of hatred and contempt. So, I mean, things like, oh, why wouldn't they? Things like, you know, this, this debate that's happening at the moment about Newstart and... Um, you know the the unwillingness of of the government to raise new start from what is it three hundred thirty dollars a week? You know this this pittance that no mo, nobody can live on. Now one of the things I've been thinking a lot about because it's something that affected a friend of mine is this um the way the department is cracking down on um, social security with this so called robo debt program. Now I don't know if you, how familiar you guys are with the way robo debt works. What happens is. The department uses an algorithm to calculate on the balance of probability that there's a discrepancy in the amount that you've been paid over the years. And then they'll raise a debt against that amount and they'll present you with it. And they'll say to you, we think you've been overpaid by $20,000. 
quite large figures on on, on vacations. I think twenty thousand, thirty thousand, ten thousand dollars. It's up to you to prove that this is not true. We're not saying that it's true. We're not saying we don't have evidence this actually happened. We think there's a probability that it did. It's up to you to prove that it's not true. How do you prove that it's not true? You have to provide uh, pay slips going back five years. And these are people who have been working in temporary jobs in bars or whatever, often people with not very good English or with disabilities or whatever. And they are just freaking out. Like, because they're suddenly told that this debt will increase all of the time. You're not going to be able to travel. Um, you're going to lose whatever your payments are unless you can prove this thing. A whole bunch of lawyers have said that it's not actually legal what they're doing, but they're doing it irrespective. This is taking place at the same time as. Well, to, okay, to one really clear um, example, Christopher Pine and Julie Bishop just left Parliament after the last election because they have both been in Parliament for a long time. They left on the basis of um, pensions so that I think Bishop is getting paid $300,000 a year for the rest of her life. Pine is getting paid $200,000 a year for the rest of his life. One of the things that Pine did before he left when he was Minister for Defence was he implemented a program to, as he said, to make Australia one of the weapons exporting powerhouses in the world. Um, he's now got a job um, working as a defence consultant, like almost immediately after leaving Parliament. Julie Bishop was involved in a project to privatise um, foreign aid. She's now on a board of... Um, one of the biggest contractors to the department delivering parliament um, delivering private aid the, the code of conduct for parliamentarians says that they are not to be involved in the private sector with any um, bodies that may be relevant to their previous employment as a minister they've clearly flouted it um, but parliament says well these are advisory um, recommendations there's not going to be any measures taken again nothing can happen so here are these people who are on these rivers of gold people on 350 dollars a week on new start are being investigated by algorithms so this is a long way of saying back going back to the original point that that young people are not just angry about climate but just this sort of sense that the, the manifest unfairness the manifest difference in the way that the poor are treated compared to the rich the average um uh, Fairfax had a piece a couple of days ago saying that um, one in three parliamentarians has an investment property as well as owning their own home. So you tell to kids today who have no prospect of ever buying a house. So anyway, the, the, point, the point I was going to make is that the anger is not simply about climate, but climate is something which kind of epitomises everything. People are saying, not am I never going to have a decent job, not am I ever going to be able to earn my, um, to buy my own house, but there's not going to be a planet for me to live in in 20 to 30 years. Time. Giraffes are on the endangered list for fuck's sake. Um, Sorry for all the swearing. <laughs> we'll put the warning. <laughs> but but it is an interesting. It's it's the fascinating point of, of I guess when you feel a sense of social injustice, um, well, how do you express it? And and the funny thing is, so I know that we've spoken so much about how the church is an element to responding to injustice. It's it's a it's a place for mm. expression of injustice, uh, you know, and, and discussion of it. And I know that um, particularly when the same sex marriage plebiscite was was happening, I was talking to a lot of. of some people I know who work in schools who are around schools. And the, the sentiment was that the young people of the country were so politically engaged mm. that, that there was almost... There wasn't a complacency. There wasn't a, oh, whatever happens, happens, doesn't affect me. But actually, you know, at, at my old high school, I remember there was a bit of a controversy where one of the chaplains got up and spoke a message about marriage and basically the whole school was furious. You know, the student body was furious about this. They were they cared deeply. Um, but the problem is, too, that so many people have seen the church as in line with the same corruption we're talking about. Not, not an avenue to express the frustration yes, yeah. and injustice, but part of the injustice. Yeah. Uh, I think in some ways we've been um, sold on the same old rhetoric. I noticed you, you raised it, Jeff, in the book, um, talking about the, the, the new atheist is sort of cast anyone who goes to church as being essentially stupid, you know, and so we have these, these stereotypes of the conservative um, believing stupid 
masses and generally older as well Um, and and sometimes I think we've almost bought our own rhetoric uh, and we have some of the same I have friends in who are members of either Labour or the Liberal Party and I listen to them and I think they could be talking about the church the way they're talking we seem to be be morphing into the same culture that's that's there Um, and yet there's uh, there is within the church the capacity um, and you, you mentioned, I think, you at least allude to the idea of, of a, a creativity and imagination needing to find new ways to work together. Um, and the church, I think, has, uh, at its heart, at its best, um, should have that capacity to be listening well to all age groups across class divides, across age divides, across gender and sexuality divides, and actually be forming, because that's what we're... That's what we're about. We're actually the whole idea is is about being. How do we live into that? It's you know in our terms a new kingdom idea that that's where we're being a humanity that is 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 one working together for the good of all. Well, I mean, it's interesting to say that because I think that the coming period is going to provide lots of opportunities to manifest that because I think that if the climate rebellion is going to go anywhere it will need to have something of the character of say the civil rights movement of the 60s i think that's very much like the kind of model that's emerging because it goes back to the 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 point about sort of cynicism and apathy that on something like climate if you present a minimal solution it's much easier for people to be cynical about it because it simply doesn't seem adequate to the the scale of the problem that we face. We are dealing now with the need to fundamentally renegotiate humanity's relationship with nature. It's not simply a question about climate. Climate, in some ways, is just a metonym for a broader environmental, you know, deforestation, for instance, is in some ways an even worse problem, the the um, destruction of the oceans and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a much bigger problem and... If you present people with a solution that says, oh, we're just going to put a tax on carbon, it doesn't seem like a real solution because the problem is so much bigger than that. So it's, it, it's the sort of issue that you either go big on it or you go home. It was one of the problems for the Labor Party on the, on the election. But the way I think it will manifest, given the absolute failure of um, the political class to offer any way forward on this, I think... Um, the sort of extinction rebellion model of mass civil disobedience of people being prepared for mass arrests mm. of people being prepared to fill the jails you know for non-violent civil disobedience where people simply say we cannot go on like this um and you know i mean the church did play a role in those civil rights struggles yeah. in, in in the 60s and i think that there will be it's going to be a real testing time for people i think because uh, you know, I think this will be a very polarising issue. Mm. Um, and I don't think that the, the, that the sort of change that we need around climate is going to be won mm. without some really sort of serious confrontations on the yes. scale that took yes. place in the 60s and the 70s. All those images of those, you know, white cops turning fire hoses on, mm-hmm. on protesters, this is what we're going to see, I think. It's hard to imagine anything different. And, and also to um, for us to think as as church for how we can speak with a voice that is not just sliding into we have i think the media is uh, a real threat for controlling and and limiting freedom at the moment uh, in in my opinion i think the way that the media conglomerates of are speaking with one voice um and and people are uh, have lost um access in some ways despite having myriads of access through through you know communication across the globe um being able to speak to actually engage with what's happening on the big issues not be distracted i guess that's part of it we're being distracted by by surface issues or things that are being used to polarize us and i I do think the media is actually being actively and intentionally harnessed to polarize and cause divisions between people how do we actually and one thing is by meeting face to face together by getting engaged as you say on the ground going to some of these demonstrations listening um meeting others you know but we i think there's needs a there's a cause for for people of faith to be active resistors to that which would limit human freedom and that which would try to sell us the lie that in some way that other person really is other to you that they are less than human in some way and uh, our, our resistance needs to be quite strong and as you say i think it, it may take us down roads that are akin to the civil rights movement 
Yeah, so on the media stuff, I mean, I, I think you're right. The media in Australia is terrible. I mean, you know, it's it's one of the um, most concentrated media ownerships anywhere um, in, in the world. I mean, it's just leaving aside the politics of it. The standard of the Australian media is, you know, is very bad. But um, that being said, I think the broader um, cynicism and disaffection that we've been talking about also apply to people's attitudes to the media. So in some senses, even though, you know, the conservative media has a fairly um, significant domination of the, the, the various platforms, um, I think in some ways you can also say that their ability to actually shape anything has massively declined. That, that, that most people are so cynical about yes. everything they read and everything. There's a paper like the Daily Telegraph or whatever. It's you know, one of the biggest selling tabloids in the country. You look at the um, surveys about people's trust of everything it says. And it's extraordinarily low. Most of the people who read it, read it for the sport. You know what I mean? They, they might flip past the Andrew Bolt thing or whatever. But, you know, the number of people who actually obsess about the things that Andrew Bolt obsesses about is, is very minuscule. And as you say... I think um, if we are able to build some sort of um, movement engaging in direct politics, it becomes much, much easier for people to collectively, you know, dis- dis- dismiss the effects of the media. You become accustomed to, you know, if you go to those sort of demonstrations, you become accustomed to the media lying about you and it just doesn't bother you anymore. Jeff, I'm interested. I'm a strong AFL supporter and in the AFL lately we've seen uh, a few documentaries released about the Adam Goods saga a number of years ago where uh, an Aussie rules player was booed um, significantly over a number of years every time he played by by fans um, for for racial reasons it was quite clearly a racist thing that was denied at the time anyway they made a number of documentaries about it one of them screened a a couple of months ago I think on Channel 10 and I remembered following the commentary around this and watching the documentary which was such a moving um, comprehensive piece on what had happened and I remember reading some of the replies when Channel 10 had tweeted about the documentary of people just saying what you suggested there, they weren't going to watch it Just, um, well, I don't need to hear this thing again and mm. again you know there was a total disengagement a distrust uh, There's, it's almost like we've become closed down we're not open to conversation we're not open to changing our minds um, you know, you, you say anything you're going to be labelled a, a you know, radical lefty you're gonna, you might be labelled a a conservative um, person, you know, you, you're just going to be stuck in this in this dynamic where no one's actually interested in finding this middle road, finding the way forward together, or or excited by possibilities, you know, of, of where we could go together. But it, it just feels like we are so bedded down into this culture war that we can't actually bring about any sort of social cohesion. Um, and I know that is something you touch a lot on in the book. You know, one of the the questions you ask is is how do we respond to social inequality in the age of Donald Trump? How, how do we get somebody, you know, to, to, to people to come together on things like this? And are, do you think that's possible or do you think it just has to be oppositional at the moment? Okay, so there's a lot in there. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to tease some of those things out. First thing I should say is, even though I'm from Melbourne, I know absolutely nothing about AFL. I mean, I, I was working in radio when that stuff was happening, so I'm vaguely aware of the Adam Goods thing. I haven't seen the film. So take that in advisement in terms mm. of what I'm saying that I'm perhaps not the best person to, to respond particularly to that but at a general level I think one of the tendencies that sort of defines culture war is the propensity to take an issue that manifests particularly and affects particularly the poorest people in society and the masses of society and address it solely in terms of how it affects a particular representative who is generally wealthy and famous. So a lot of the, the culture war debates around race and gender and transgender issues or whatever are usually centred on... A Hollywood person, or a, you know, a, a film star, or a, um, and and often this is where they first manifest. And I think when an instance of oppression manifests amongst you know famous celebrities, you then have two choices in how you respond. You can respond to it simply on that level as something which is affecting this individual who happens to be like rich and, and, and powerful and famous 
or you can try to draw out the broader issue and show how the kind of oppression that they're facing affects even more um, you know, ordinary people in society who happen to be of that ethnicity or gender or whatever. And I think if you take the latter approach, it's it makes it much, much easier to sort of break down the kind of cultural bullshit that breaks out. Because one of the ways that the conservatives respond to these things is to say, you people are simply concerned about elites. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is an elite discussion. This person is, you know, this doesn't affect ordinary people or whatever. So if you start talking about, say, I don't know, like how racism affects, you know, Indigenous people who live in the suburbs or Indigenous people who live in Melbourne or Indigenous people who, you know, live in... um, in country towns or whatever then you start talking about things like poverty you start talking about things like education and then it poses you to say well how do we address this and what kind of education system would be less racist or whatever and that i think makes it much easier to build solidarity because if you start talking about like well okay we need to pump um, money into education because the education system is falling apart well actually most people whether they're white or black want their kids to have a good education do you, you know what i mean like and if you if you phrase it like that it, it's much easier to say actually we all have a common interest okay there are people in society you know who don't want us to have a good education but all of the people in this suburb all of the people that we know all of the working class people that we move around all want our schools to be good and there's a basis for some kind of solidarity that allows the sort of question allows the issue to move forward in a way that it doesn't if we're simply talking about the the trials and tribulations of famous people if you see what i mean and it doesn't address the adam goods thing and as i said i don't really know the ins and outs of it particularly Uh, well yeah it was more as an example of an uh, instance where i felt a filmmaker had come out and put something together to try to bring people together on the matter and show all sides of something and and yet the depth and complexity of it was being completely rejected by people who wouldn't engage yeah but i mean i, I do think on these things i, I do think there's, there's there's a bit of a contradictory tendency in 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 what you're saying because I, I do think that if we want people to address these things um seriously we have to actually fight for them mm-hmm. and that actually does involve conflict mm-hmm. do you know that, that yeah, means yeah, identifying true. an enemy and that means defeating the enemy and I don't think we should be abashed about saying that. Like, as I said before, that there, there are certain people who are destroying the planet and we should stop them. Actually, Jeff, speaking of that, we, we have mentioned this on this podcast before. Peter Cat, who is another um, host who isn't with us in, in this uh, episode, he often says that um, doing nothing is political. Uh, yeah. That doing nothing isn't really an option. Some people say, oh, I don't want to get political. I don't, I don't want to do that. But actually, if you do nothing, if you say nothing, if you stand for nothing, you, that is... Um, by nature, an affirmation of the status quo. So you, by doing nothing, by not saying anything about climate change or just thinking that's not my problem, what you're doing is, I suppose, affirming that I don't mind that these pe- these companies are doing what they're doing to the planet. I'm, it doesn't bother me that much. Mm. Um, by saying nothing about racism, by not standing up against racism, what you're generally doing is you're affirming that, well, I don't mind that, you know, I don't mind that people are being treated badly because of the colour of their skin. Yes. So so do you think in this age we are in, and I suppose everyone, the, the duty of everyone is to find the most constructive, compassionate way to do it, but that we that action is is inevitable and we have to make sure we're not taking the right actions against all of all of these inequalities we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly in the um, period we're in now, you can say that, you know, you might not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. (laughs) And, you know, the things that are going to be happening over the next few years are going to affect us all quite dramatically. Um, You know, we, we, we can't know this for certain, but it seems quite likely that we're about to enter a recession. Mm. Um, I mean, you think that the the level of the um, political debate has been unhinged and hysterical at the moment. Wait till we're dealing with, you know, 10% unemployment. You know, um, I think that the world is entering into a quite dangerous phase at the moment. And I don't think there's any obvious end in sight and i think that's perhaps a difficult thing for people to come to terms with because a lot of us 
Well, I mean, you're younger than I am, but a lot, a lot of people um, were brought up to a sen- with a sense of some notion of progress, you know, some notion that things like racism and sexism and even poverty were being gradually overcome and mm. that the future would be better than the past. We're heading towards a utopia. Nobody thinks that now. Nobody thinks the future is going to be better than the past. You know, like, um, I mean, one of the things I, I think about a lot is um, when, you know, when was the last movie that you saw that that uh, depicted a future that was in any way better than, than <laughs> so we can all think about a million films that are, show the world as a ruined hellscape or a dystopia. When was the last one that actually painted a vision of a society that was in any way better? And um, that's because nobody thinks that's what's going to happen. Mm. And I, I think we're in, in looking at those kind of dystopias, there is, and perhaps younger people are waking up to this sooner, but that um, there is a need to take that responsibility ourselves, that we have to engage. And, you know, we, we don't have... And conflict is not a bad word. You know, conflict is, is inevitable part of being human, part of living in, in any civil society that we have to. There's going to be ultimately... Um, there's those who have power and money in inordinate degrees who aren't going to want to give it up. Yes. You know, that, that's, that's essentially why there's going to be, to be conflict. It's not a moderate position. Um, they, they, it is in their interest to retain a, a, an inordinate amount of money and power um, that does not have much um, scope for caring for those who have less. And it does not have, and is actually thoroughly committed to retaining the status quo. So that's where Peter Catton is, is, is talking about silence is taking a position because mm. it's taking a position that maintains that kind of inequality and status quo. Um, and, and I'm interested in also as we go into this interesting time where um, obviously the issues are extreme, particularly when we, we talk about, um, about climate and about the, the increasing um, gap between rich and poor, that you see always that the the losers keep losing. People who start out and uh, with with a lack of a fair share, it, it just seems to spiral and decline. You know, I see that when um, in your visit in prison, you know, you you see those who already were handed a really raw deal, and they don't have the capacity, and they're receiving not the help to be able to get get out of that. You know, that the when with with climate change, we can look globally and say, you know, those who are uh, who are already so disadvantaged, they they're the ones who are going to bear the brunt of our inaction on climate change. Um, yes. So, you know, and, and here, so I guess I'm, I'm just highlighting either when you, when you talk about, no, we're not just looking for a middle position here. There are some things that we do need to call out as wrong. And I think from a, uh, from a faith perspective, that's essential <laughs> too. Well, it's something I think about um, a lot. I mean, one of the countries or one of the regions where um, climate change is already having a massive effect and where it's predicted to produce huge population flows is sub-saharan africa well what are this what is the climate footprint of these people that live there you know how many emissions are they responsible for so it's the people who have um done least to create this situation are the people who are going to suffer the most from it so there's this fundamental inequity that runs through this phenomenon as you say you know um, that it's those who have little have the little the little that they have will be taken away from them. Which I've read that somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah, and so so it, I mean, it's one of the reasons I think that we need to be really resistant to this rhetoric that we are all in this together because we're not all in this in, in this together. There are a lot of people who are making a lot of money out of um, you know climate pollution and those people will continue to do so until the last clump of coal is burned or whatever you do with it you know um yeah and when when that last lump is burnt then they'll have a lot of money to go and live in a mansion in while the rest of the world yeah well that's right that's right they'll they'll be investigating colonies on mars or whatever it is (laughs) yeah yeah it's it is a a potentially uh, quite an overwhelming time and i know i imagine some people listening might feel a bit overwhelmed (laughs) listening to this i do a little bit because it the, the problems feel so enormous gigantic these problems really that it's sort of hard to imagine how any of us in our own little corner of the world are going to do anything to try to make a chance that the future might be better than the past like we used to think it would be what 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 do you think jeff i guess from when you go about your day-to-day life what do you think you want like we can do individually and together to actually try to make that happen have you given up hope that the future could end up being better than the past have you totally abandoned that hope that that's 
not happening and we're just fighting for scraps now? Or, or do you, do you so still like, hold hope? When I was at school, the notion that two men might get married seemed like science fiction. It wouldn't even seem like science fiction. I mean, if you if you actually look at the 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 rhetoric of the um, early gay liberation movement, marriage was never raised as a slogan. Never, and one of the reasons it was never raised is people just well, it was partly because people had a critique of marriage, but it was also because partly just people just never thought it was ever going to be on the agenda. Now, sentiment on that changed so extraordinarily quickly. Um, now. Climate is a different issue and in some ways is a more difficult issue, but it is important to, 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 to recognise that the world can change and the world can change quite quickly. And, you know, even in the short term, if we're looking at, you know, um, the possibility of some real defeats, that doesn't mean that we can't win um, in the end. There are all sorts of political outcomes that we take for granted now that previous generations thought would never be um, achieved. So that's one part of the answer. Um, and the other part is, I, I think if people are feeling um, despairing or oblique, oblique about this stuff, um, getting involved in the movements that are beginning to break out everywhere is one of the best antidotes to that because you're with other people you start to feel a sense of your own power you start to feel that the world can be otherwise also it's interesting and the thing about direct politics is it's fun do you know what i mean like actually you're changing the world you're you're doing things you're meeting other people it's not like parliamentary politics which is boring you know like uh, social movements are fun well, they're not always fun, you know, but, but I mean, so it, 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 it could well be a bleak time, but it could also be quite an exciting time. Yeah. Mm. And I actually think it's quite an exciting time for the church because I think the church gets that, you know, the, the essential goodness of people that you encounter when you're working with is you, I'm always revived in hope by the, by the goodness of others who really do care, who really care enough to, to give up so much of their life and pour out their life for the sake, for the service of others. And I, and I see it again and again. And it's a recovery for me of the church's heartland of actually being together um, and recognising that, um, that, that, that there is love and there is uh, compassion for one another that makes life very meaningful. And as we work together, we can actually get out of the rhetoric, get out of the, the, the media storm that would have us believe certain things in the world and compose a, a totally different narrative. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, the problems do seem overwhelming, but I suppose uh, the, the agency on each of us, Sue, as we've chatted about so many times in this podcast, is as agents of change in this world, and, and that's the, the agency we've been given. I have to use the word agency a few times, but I think <laughs> it, is, it is the key word, isn't it? Yeah, that, that, that is what we have word. now. Responsibility. Responsibility to, to actually make a difference and, and stand up and, and start changing things. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. It's an intense conversation. I imagine thinking about this stuff all day, every day, can sometimes lead to some existential crises for you. <laughs> oh, no, no, I think I'm all right. You think you're all right? <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's been, it's been great chatting with you. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of the podcast shortly.